Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursion? Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hi and welcome to Everywhere. I am your host, Daniel Scheffler. Today's travel commandment, thou shall worship all things local. The way I see it, travel is both a noun and a verb. But for the most part, I think we use it as a verb. To travel, to explore, to see, to escape, to lose yourself, to find yourself. I think of it so much as a very busy doing word. So perhaps that's why travel has a connotation of leaving home for another place, another country, another city, upstate, wherever. But I'm also the biggest fan of traveling in my own city. Maybe that's why travel for me is a noun, the concept of travel more than the doing of it necessarily. As a New Yorker, I've slept in roughly 50 hotels in Manhattan and a few in the other boroughs as staycations. Because when you live somewhere, it's so easy to forget all the beauty and excitement of the actual place and why I chose to live there. Especially in a city like New York. Because locals have the joys of standing in line as a day trip at the DMV, somewhere in the Bronx, to get their driver's license, or having to do this crazy, insane, zigzag dance at the Trader Joe's in Chelsea, which takes an entire afternoon or fending off yet another person accosting you to sign up for dog knows what. Oh, New York, the things you make me do. But I have a serious love for a staycation. Let's call that the noun of travel. And yes, staycation is a silly, silly word. So let's rename it. Suggestions, anyone? I'm taking them at our email address, please. This desire for staying in hotels in my hometown and for experiencing home almost as a tourist actually started for me as a young boy, right in London, maybe the greatest city on earth. I mean, you've heard the saying, right? If you're tired of London, you're tired of life. Well, apparently I heard that loud and clear, and I jumped right into it, making sure that travel without travel, darling London, was as exciting as possible. This was my method at age eight, and I haven't quit yet. 
As an eight-year-old, my needs were centered around Zone 1, which is truly the center of London. By the time I was a teenager, I was heading far east in the city, which in the early 2000s was a place for Sunday afternoon rave parties that spilt onto the streets by Monday morning as the city was heading to their respectable offices. Now that I'm an adult, or sort of an adult, all of London feels like a staycation to me. But almost as if I can't help it, I've always given all my loving to old London town, celebrating it like it's my greatest journey yet. Top of the morning to you. The Sunday afternoons of my teenage years were spent with Fatboy Slim and Daft Punk. But at age eight, my obsessions were more on the lines of Agatha Christie, Rudyard Kipling, the great Oscar Wilde, and the original vampire storyteller Bram Stoker. Ah, the writers of my early youth, and in fact, writers all with a love for the classic Brown's Hotel in London. Discreet, understated, and tipping into this sort of Edwardian past, the hotels for the literary-minded lover of old England. Forgotten old England, perhaps. Ready to take reservations for locals like us to come and sojourn. With no great big staircase to dazzle or giant ballrooms with crystal chandeliers, this property is just a couple of silly old London townhouses cozying up to form an intimate hotel. So as a young lad, the bookworm as they called me, I easily found my nook right at the fireplace in the front room. For the next 20 plus years, the room's decor changed every few years, but the fireplace stayed and my nook remained mine. Mother appreciated a staycation as much as I did, and where better than a hotel where writers came, spent nights and wrote their overtures. As an English major, she approved. In the early years, I was so overwhelmed by the Jungle Book and would stay awake many a night just imagining myself as Mowgli in the forests of India, embarking on these tree-swinging adventures, all the while staying in the, what they now call, Kipling Suite, named after yours truly. Because this is exactly where Mr. Kipling was when he was letting his mind travel to magical lands, like I did. But really, to be serious, it was Agatha Christie's character, Miss Marple, who in my mind was more of like a Betty Davis than the scowling Margaret Rutherford. And I guess we have to include bothersome Hercule Poirot, who taught me about crafting interesting stories. I was mesmerized and followed these two characters in the worlds that Dame Agatha Christie created to solve a whodunit. I was, and I still am, the proverbial amateur sleuth. It's annoying to most of my friends when we travel because I'm always Nancy Drewing, or being a hardy boy and trying to uncover something that may or may not have happened. I'll sidetrack you for a minute to tell you a funny little story. Just the other day, we were staying at this giant fancy hotel in Disney, Florida, worshipping all things local Orlando, of course, like that blazing sun, when it became clear to us that something was amiss deep in the night. A woman was sitting at a little, little desk with an iPad. She was dressed in nothing memorable, and she was handling the iPad in a normal iPadian way. What was odd was that she was sitting outside one of the hotel rooms, right in the hallway. 
We walked by a number of times in that I'm pretending to not look, but I'm looking kind of way, mumbling your room number, 116, 116, over and over. Right, we've all done that. Sex trafficking, said one friend. Another, drugs, definitely drugs. I know drugs when I see drugs. I felt more Nancy Drewish at this point, so I was going with something wilder, like she was checking people in for a gambling ring, like Molly Bloom would. Of course, this was hours of speculation and fun for everyone. Well, my friends found out what was really going on the next morning, and it was good. Even Miss Marple would have never suspected this. A royal family from Africa was staying in a villa nearby. The staff happened to be staying at our hotel. Of course, what would royal families from African countries do when in Florida? They would shop. So our lady behind the desk was cataloging all their many, many purchases. Miss Marple would have been flummoxed. But back to London and Agatha Christie, who in her novel at Bertram's Hotel, which is said to take place at the Very Brown's Hotel, had Miss Marple calling it the perfect mix of Edwardian and Victorian atmosphere. Just think about what that even means, if you're even a slight Anglophile. She was commenting on the prim staff and elderly guests and I am sure so many other things. So here I am, in my nook, uttering similar sentiments. From my nook, I transported myself to Bertram's and I played the part of Miss Marple, thinking I could solve this murder mystery in the very hotel I was staying. The creaky staircase, the gorgeous hallways, secret passages between the townhouses, even the back entrances became movie sets in my mind. All this fun without really going anywhere. See, this is what I'm telling you. Travel is whatever you decide it should be. And to this day, this is still my tradition as I return to the hotel every year. I stealthily watch every guest who enters the tea room. I pay careful attention to how they stir their cups of tea. I even lean in to overhear their conversations. At night, I peek through the curtains and look down on the abandoned London street, wondering who's coming in and who's leaving through the doors of this grand old hotel. Over 20 years, it's here that I developed a taste for murder mystery and for meticulously using clues to solve my puzzle. I was taught just how to observe human behavior. Why is that lady with the oversized handbag looking at her watch? Was that bellhop pocketing something he received from a guest who left the hotel in such a rush? Maybe life is all just a murder mystery. But there are other ways to worship all things local too, like traveling to a place and making it your mission to find something so niche and appropriately of the place that you can become a little expert. Like going to Japan and learning anything you can possibly learn about matcha tea culture or incredible denim. Or what if you go to Argentina and become this tango expert, exploring different styles, outfits, drinks to go with your dancing? You're getting my drift, right? Well, I chose something I knew nothing about. That's usually how I choose my niche activities. Not something obvious or something I've been interested in before, but rather something totally off my usual course of interest. 
And so I hopped south to Madeira, Portugal's southern island, where the tradition of embroidery is not only continuing for centuries, but is constantly improving. Who would have thought that the home of Cristiano Ronaldo would open up embroidery to me? During my quest for embroidery, linen and all things lacy, I also found a place quite like no other. The world has fewer and fewer grand dumb hotels left, but here on the cliffs of Madeira's capital, Funchal, I found Reed's Palace, a hotel that withstood two wars and the crush of social media, offering a geek like me an entire collection of all things embroidery. Okay, so picture this, a whole room with glass cabinets filled with special embroidery the hotel did for visiting dignitaries, every possible royal family member from Europe, Hollywood starlets, and scary politicians. I had just settled in at a little table with a handy magnifying glass and my little gloves when I noticed an elegant lady dressed in navy and a little heel walking over to the notice board near me. She seemed to pin something on, and off she marched, with a gleaming smile thrown my way. Of course, within seconds I was up and scrutinizing the notice board. Seeking card player of excellent skill, willing to play bridge, canasta, and rummy. Games room, 5 p.m. sharp. Sincerely, Miss Edith Ainsley. Of course, for my show, I changed her name out of deference. I cleared my busy embroidery schedule immediately. At moments to five, I rolled up at the games room, dressed in a blazer, at least. The softly lit carpeted room was overly quiet and there was this cool breeze coming off the ocean. The balcony doors were flung open and there was this mystery woman seated at a four-seater card table facing the sea. I'm Miss Edith Ainsley, and I hope you've come to play cards with me this evening. She rung a small buzzer on the table and informed me that someone will be by shortly to offer me provisions. Her advice, a pink gin, of course, and no cell phones, please, she added. Oh, and now since we're card companions, she offered that I may call her Edith. So Edith no longer placed any orders. Every staff member knew exactly what she'd have, and went precisely to deliver it to her, part of the furniture as only I could wish. Her hands rolled like she had worked casinos her whole life. Please, grace me with your presence, she smiled. I sat down and I didn't get up for three hours. We worked our way through the most serious canasta of my life. She killed me every round. I was a mere jack in her game of aces, baby. So Edith had been a guest of Reed's Palace since 1920, and this was not her first rodeo on some young one on the cards. At nearly a hundred, she spends the majority of a year at the hotel. As she says, when the English weather turns miserable, I swoop down to the island. Her mind was filled with the past. Yes, of course, I appreciate embroidery, Edith kept telling me. In fact, I have my very own set of linen here at the hotel. They hand-embroidered it for me. Not too much, just simple patterns that I could tolerate. She told me about her childhood and her husband who passed away many years ago, her love for little dogs and gin. And then she told me how many years ago 
Sir Winston Churchill arrived at the hotel, slightly unannounced if you could believe that. Well, she said, I offered him my suite. After all, this feels like my home, and it's all for queen and country, isn't it? And so we quickly had special linen hand-embroidered for him here in town. Of course, it was the talk of Funchal. Even Edith was worshipping all things local, in every possible way. As I said this to her, she said, Why, yes, that is what you do when you travel. You smoke local cigarettes, drink local wine, even if they are both terrible. And you never hobnob with other tourists. I, of course, invited Edith to join me for dinner, which was this lavish affair under a cloudy, frescoed ceiling sky. Can you say the word snazzy? I had a dinner jacket, she had a divine dress, and we had this appetite for twirling. Edith was still the gem on this shiny sea of dancing and my dream hotel guest. As we waltzed, we romanced all things from the past in our simple movement. We could trip the light fantastic, as I worshipped the now local herself. I dress for both myself and the atmosphere, Edith said. And with that, Edith's cup overfloweth, offering just a peep into the bygones. The ocean was her company, with simply the quiet lull of afternoon teas served on the veranda, and the mountains slightly covered with mist was the entertainment. Days were unnamed and unnumbered, evenings all wobbling into one. Smoking wasn't banned for anyone yet, and drinking before noon wasn't even beheld. Problems were Atlantic oceans away, and attention spans stretched into eternal summers of loving. Meeting someone like Edith is the very reason anyone should travel. There's an Edith at every old world hotel. She's to be found on the dance floor at the dinner dance, or at the card table in the games room. And it's exactly there, over a chop-chop game of bridge, where you'll be in the moment without having to think about it too much. She'll talk and you'll actually want to listen, not wait to speak. She'll remind you to make time for beauty and laughter. She's the original hostess to a good time. Her wit will ensure it in every hand. Who knew, Madeira, the hidden middle sister of Portugal, home to Edith. It's, in fact, where the literati British delightfulness came to elude Europe's glitzy sets and London's pell-mell pace. Today, Madeira holds exactly the same charm, beyond the afternoon tea and fancy silverware. So leave your technology, behave like a local, dress like you care, and come waltz through the past so fair. Let's take a break to hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back with more travel from everywhere. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. 
But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for sticking around. Here's more of Everywhere. I'm here with Holly Fry, who I trip the light fantastic with too, all the time. <laughs> I've yet to waltz with her, but the day is it young. It could happen. It could happen at any moment. Uh, one of the things that I think is interesting, you know, I know you spent time living in London. How much did you engage with its history while you were there? Like, do you have a favorite historical spot? I have a few. What are they? Well... I have this thing that I really love, Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm, as do many. I've gone on these like crazy historical walks where you can like see all the places that Jack the Ripper killed people. Yeah. <laughs> Which is so macabre and amazing. But that's London town. Well, because it's so old. Right. I mean, it's literally hundreds and hundreds and thousands, really, if you want to go back to like its earliest foundings of years old. So... Almost any human experience you can imagine has happened there at some point in time. Which is why there's plenty of macabre things to explore if that's your jam. So I have that. And then the Victorian Albert Museum. Oh, so good. So good. And then there's stupid little things that I love. Like there's like a Princess Diana plaque in one of the parks. Mm -hmm. And I walk by and I think she was such a beautiful representation of grace and good manners, that it's like a lovely reminder to walk past the park and see this kind of historic, like new historic thing. Yeah. So there's that. And then did you know that London has these underground tunnels? Oh, yes, of course. That you can go and tour. And all of London used to be one surface lower. So it's been raised over time. Even the Mona Lisa's falling apart. We're all sinking in some way or another, right? (laughs) Right. I love Fight Club. I do too. Um, here's the thing that I think is interesting is you can find almost anything in London, like I said, to represent some part of some human experience that might be your thing. I know you do not like lists, but I have not a list, but just a few things that are examples of the kinds of things that people could explore should they want to. Did you know that you there is a service online that will show you where all of the plague pits of London were. See, that's what I love. And you can just love. walk around and find them based on that. Who doesn't want to find a plague pit? Right? It's quite fantastic. Like, they even have a full social media representation, so you can go check out Historic UK on Twitter, and they will show you where plague pits are. I mean, I in many cases, what you're going to go see is obviously not an active plague pit. Like, it's not going to be a hole in the ground. Things have been built up over it. As you said, the city has shifted in many ways. But for me, it's always important because I like history, even if there are not necessarily visible examples immediately available to my eye, just to take a quiet moment and stand in a place like this and recognize 
that you are in the same place where something significant happened is can be sometimes very humbling, very moving. But also there's just like a part of it to me that it's like, this isn't to diminish the sadness of something like a plague pit, but like, it's really neat that we have the information available to us that we can travel the world historically as well as just geographically. Well, close to where I spend a lot of time in Pimlico Road is where the original Chelsea Bun House yeah. is, where Chelsea Buns were invented. And that you can go and find in London. Like, so things that are seemingly silly, it's all part of like London history. Yeah. I mean, you can also go visit uh, the place where the execution dock used to be located, where pirates were hung. Also another fascinating thing. And the thing that I love about these is, like, there's there's no cost to it. You could just look it up online, and you're off and running. Do you know about the blue plaque? No, do tell. Thing? So you've probably seen them because you lived there, and they've been there for a long time. The blue plaques of London are, like, historical markers. It was started in the 1860s, actually, like, this idea of having these particular plaques that will mark historically significant places where— Particularly historically significant people did things. And the fun thing is you can just walk around London, and if you have an eye out for them, you'll see them on various buildings, and it it might give you, you know, an interesting point of reference. Like I said, there are more than 900 of them around London, so odds are good no matter what neighborhood you're in, you're going to spy one. The group English Heritage actually runs it now, and they have even made an app so that it's kind of interactive, and you can, one, it will help you find things if you're looking for particular types of historical places. Um, Like if you want to look at plaques that mark uh, women who are involved in the suffrage movement, you can literally make your own tour that way. Or, you know, literary people or any number of other things. But also you get like a little free education basically along the way. And again, it costs nothing. You just go run around the city. You don't have to pay for a tour. It's all self-guided. You stop and have lunch when you want. But you can get, like, this way deeper understanding of the area, even if you just want to keep it, like, the neighborhood where your hotel is. Right. There are going to be plaques there, almost definitely. And it just, again, it gives you that sense of, like, we're all part of something bigger. We talk about that all the time, that, like, our place in the world. This is the reminder. Our place in the world is that we're all making history in some way or another. We, We don't have to sit in a seat of government or be, you know, part of a royal family. Everyone is part of the story of history, and this is kind of a nice way to engage with that. And that's what I really love about it. It makes history way more real when you're standing in the place where it happened. Right. I have two um, sweet London stories to tell you. One of the things that I love most about London is that, did you know, as much as I'm an Uber slash Lyft person, Mm -hmm. black cabbie drivers do a rigorous test when you want to become the famed black cab driver, you have to do a test called the knowledge. And it involves memorizing every single street in the entire capital. I 100% believe it. You cannot make a mistake. So their knowledge is when you get into a black cab, you can give them any street and they will be able to find it. I love it. The other amazing thing I have to tell you is I used to spend a lot of time in Pimlico, and Warwick Square, and one day I saw this man, and he had falcons on his arm in the park, and he told me that he runs the Falcon Society of London. Like, these are just random people in the city. And I was like, how many falcons are about to arrive on your arm? And he was like, 
three, and three falcons <laughs> like swooped down and like sat on his arm. And he was like, I am here to train anyone who would like to learn about falconry. They live in the Tower of London. Yeah. Which there's other birds that live there too, but these particular falcons live there. And he told me this like insane story about what he does with the falcons. He trains them to send messages. That's fantastic. That's like old world London, and you can go and experience that. But that's the stuff that I really love about London. Like it has a little something local for everyone. It's like the obvious bangers and mash, wonderful pub on the corner, but it's also all this other weird stuff that's like fascinating. Yeah, and I really think like what's beautiful about it, I mean, we've both just talked about a bunch of things that have no like admission ticket or booking time required. All you really have to do is just keep your eyes open. Right. That history is still living all over London. Right. Hmm. What else should we talk about, Holly? Give us more London history things. I have a slightly more modern history thing that is actually a, um, it's like a warehousey museum, but it's very much up my alley of fun. It is called God's Own Junkyard. I know about that. Yeah, it's the best. Right. It's a neon museum. It's just old neon signs that have been decommissioned, but they're cared for and kept active and taken care of. And to me, that's another great way to kind of look at a city's history because commerce drives development in almost any big city in the world. And as a consequence, you really get a sense of what things have been important in terms of uh, being economic drivers in a city at various points in time versus what things have fallen out of favor. And to me, that's like part of the great thing. But also, it's just a great place to go because you get a big sense of how artistic styles have shifted over the years, which again, kind of informs your knowledge of like local flavor. And it's just, I like sparkly things anyway. So from that angle, it's beautiful. (laughs) Uh, But it is just a fun, it's kitschy. But then when you think about it in those terms about like what it's telling you about what has been popular and, and necessary in the past versus what has also become passe, it becomes an interesting exploration of the local history of the area. Right. Well, there's this thing called Secret London, Mm -hmm. where there's like all these strange, like, farting lane. Yeah. (laughs) Right? And like, French cannons as street bollards. Like, I love that London has and celebrates all this weirdness where like, I feel so many other cities are trying to modernize in a way that that they lose all this silliness. Like, I really miss living in in America. Like, I really miss the kind of wittiness and silliness of British humor. Because right. the stuff is seen as so much part of the culture and so much part of, be, of being local London that it's really, really celebrated. New York doesn't celebrate that thing. Right. There are, I feel like there are pockets of that type of celebration throughout the United States. But I don't feel like any one city really has it as part of its identity the way London does. Right. Like, London has the Clowns Gallery, which is a tiny, tiny little weird museum about the famous clowns of London. <laughs> because who doesn't want to see that? Which is great and super fun, wonderfully odd, great way to spend an afternoon. I mean, they even have, like, Harry Potter's Platform 9 and 3 quarters. Yeah. Like, that's a real thing yeah. that they've put in at um, King's Cross But no other city will actually go and implement that, right? Like, you can go and see where Harry would get onto his fictitious train. Right. I mean, I fucking love that. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> I love it. Uh, as another museum that I think is super cool, and I have not been to this one, but it is on my list to go when I am next there, is Pollock's Toy Museum. Oh, Do you cool. know that one? Because I, I love toys, and my husband and I collect toys. As um, I know. You know, I have a little problem. And it's uh, largely Victorian toys, but it's a, a museum and a little toy shop. That's, again, a great way to look at the history of a place, like what was marketed to children along the way. I mean, I I think about when the people of 100 years from now look back at, like, Game Boys, what on earth will they think of us? Similarly, though, we have the opportunity to look back at, like, Victorian England and be like, what? why why did you give your child that? <laughs> right. But also, you know, there are so many beautiful, precious, innovative things that were made simply for joy. I mean, right. that speaks a great deal to, like, the values of a, a time period. Right. Well, I guess with Brexit and the kind of uncertainty that's been in British politics for such a long time, one wonders what London now represents. So many people have left. Others are fighting for this kind of staunch Britishness, but that identity is being challenged. So it's very much what is Britain versus what is London. Like, And London is somehow caught up in the crossfire of all this because it's the capital. But to me, London is so different to what anyone thinks England is. Right. I mean, that's probably part of the problem. But it's the the way that New York is not America. It's its very own thing. London is very much that. And growing up, spending so much time there, it's this reminder of like, Everyone's there and everyone's part of this like beautiful thing with every single person you could possibly imagine, every iteration of human. Right. Anyway, well, thanks, Holly. I love spending time with you. For more history, Holly's your girl. Yeah, you can come and check out Stuff You Missed in History Class, which is my regular podcast. We publish two new episodes a week, plus one of our classics on a Saturday. And you can find us on social media at Missed in History. Great. I could brush up on some history. Everybody could. Thanks, Holly. Thanks, my love. Let's take a break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with more travel from everywhere. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trade tables up. You're returning to everywhere land. 
Welcome back. I have a few interviews for us today, starting with my friend and neighbor, Jessica Galen, who knows cheese. In fact, she has a master's in cheese from NYU. Tell us, Jessica, why, um, why do people travel for cheese? Well, cheese is an incredible representation of place. It's one of the most beautiful expressions of terroir. People talk about it with wine all the time. But cheese is such a piece of the place that it comes from if it's made with care and it's made by artisans who are attending well-cared-for animals and well-cared-for pastures. So the really exciting thing about American cheeses is that there's been this tremendous exploration of what it means to have American terroir through cheese. It's one of the few categories of food where terroir has been explored in the U.S. in every single state. So that's an exciting opportunity for Americans who are looking for right. a local food experience. Well, because people go to France to go and eat cheese, right? Like a pilgrimage to cheese. Right. Many Americans travel for niche products. Yes. They travel for wine yes. or they make a pilgrimage for whiskey to Scotland. Mm -hmm. Or they do a pilgrimage to Germany for beer, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe some people would do a pilgrimage to Spain for the cured meats. So my whole thing is that I think we could set people on a journey of America through cheese. I love it. Because I've gone to Montreal to buy cheese mm -hmm. and brought it back because you can find all this incredible raw, unpasteurized mm -hmm. cheese. Mm -hmm. But you corrected me today when I asked you whether you can get raw cheese in America because I thought everything had to be pasteurized. You can. And two of the three cheeses that we're having today are raw. Okay. So what, why would I want raw cheese opposed to pasteurized cheese? Well, uh, pasteurization kills all of the bacteria, all of the microbial life in the milk, which was an incredible public health innovation when it came into popularity. People were getting very, very sick from milk. So this was really amazing to discover a method of making milk safe to drink on a massive scale, particularly as industrialization came into play and agricultural products started to be distributed on more than a farm-by-farm -farm scale. People started collecting their milk all in one place and then selling it under a different brand name. So there could have been multiple varying qualities of the milk that was brought into the communal vat and then distributed. So you can imagine if you had one farmer who wasn't taking care of their animals well and then all their milk got combined with other farms' milk and then that milk was sold to many, many families and many, many people could get sick from one contaminated vat. So pasteurization was a really important innovation, but many academics have argued that we've gone too far toward this pasteurian ideal. Right. And you know, as with many other areas now, people are questioning whether being too clean is possible and right. are we sanitizing our environments right. too much. Are good. Yes. So okay. we have to but we have to think about what are the good microbes, what are the bad microbes, because there are plenty of pathogens that are very, very harmful. And how do we cultivate the good ones while making sure that we're creating environments that are not hospitable to the harmful ones? Okay, so now I want to know, if I wanted to go on a pilgrimage of American cheese, where would you send me, Jessica hmm. Galen? Well, Vermont is one of the um, states that's done an incredible job of cultivating and supporting a community of artisan cheesemakers who are kind of exploring this concept of American terroir 
and also um, returning to this small-scale notion of how do we take this pasture land that's really optimized for dairy animals, but help these farmers do produce a product in a way that's financially viable for them because fluid milk is a really challenging commodity to be producing right now, and cheese offers this opportunity for farmers to be producing a product that can earn them a, at least a living wage compared to what a lot of farmers are struggling with right now with fluid milk. So Vermont's been very supportive. California has a number of incredible artisan cheesemakers, but like I said, every state in the country has artisan cheesemakers at this point, which has basically only happened in the last 30 or 40 years. It's become a phenomenon. Why do people not talk about it in the same way that they talk about French cheese or Italian cheese? I think part of it is just this kind of self-deprecating idea that Americans have of our food culture, that we don't have one or that there's nothing further to explore about American food or, you know, people kind of throw away the idea of American food as burgers and fries. But the fact is there are artisans that are creating beautiful, beautiful food products all over the country, and many of them are taking inspiration from the European or other traditions. Um, But they're innovating on it, which is, that's what makes them truly American, right? They're taking these traditions, and in many ways they're improving on them, or they're pushing a limit on flavor, and they're not bound by these same requirements of how you can categorize certain cheeses. So sometimes that's carried through in a way that is not quite successful, but in other ways they're really pushing the envelope in ways that are very beautiful, so... So what is the right way to taste cheese? Okay, well, can we talk about cheese plates first? Yeah, let's talk about cheese plates. Okay, so I I like to choose a theme, so I went with American artisanal because it's a nice kind of through line, offers us an opportunity to talk about worshipping the local. I like to bring in a variety of styles, a variety of milks. So if I had four or five cheeses, what I would do is at least one cow, goat, sheep, potentially a buffalo if I could find one, water buffalo, and you want to organize a tasting from sort of least robust flavors to most robust. So if you had five cheeses, you might start with a fresh cheese or a soft ripened cheese and end with your blue or end with your stinkiest. And you want to kind of guide your guests through a tasting experience where they're not eating a mouthful of something super stinky at first, which demolishes the palate for everything else that you would taste subsequently. But people don't think of cheese in a snobby way. Like, cheese is so more approachable than wine, right? So people are intimidated by wine. When I was in Val d'Isere in January, I ate cheese from cows that were milked during winter. Mm -hmm. So we're eating hay from sheds. And then I ate cheese that was held back from cows that ate greenery from the grass before Mm -hmm. winter. Mm -hmm. And the taste was so different. Mm -hmm. And for some magical moment I was able to stop and assess these two things. Right, I mean that's a beautiful expression of your sense of place and not only sense of place, sense of time. It matters what time of year this cheese is being made, how long it's aging for, and whether or not it's pasteurized. If you, that was probably a raw cheese. If it had been pasteurized and all of the microbial life was gone from it, you might not have had quite as, um, prominent an expression of right. the product that the animal was eating because it would have been more sort of equalized between the two. I have a whole new respect for cheese. Cheese After making spending, is meeting, meeting you and spending time with you has made me really appreciate cheese. It's a really incredible art. 
It's amazing and it's very, very hard and we can't pay them enough from my perspective. I think the amount of work that goes into these cheeses. You could, teachers and cheese makers should get paid more. Absolutely, I'm with you. Okay, cut some cheese, Jessica, okay. and tell us what we're having. So Ella's gonna come and she's gonna beg for cheese because she has a real cheese palette. Wow, she is a sophisticated dog. And next. If you believe that only New York has good bagels, well, let's remove your head from the sand and let me introduce you to an old friend, Samuel Kirkpatrick, and a new friend, Joshua Bellamy, owners of the amazing Benchwarmer Bagels and Bolted Bread in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm Sam Kirkpatrick. I'm one of the owners of Bolted Bread and one of the owners of Benchwarmers Bagels and Coffee. I'm the new friend. My name is Joshua Bellamy, and I am also an owner at Bolted Bread and Benchwarmers Bagels. For me, the, the whole the bagel shop is predicated on the like overwhelming drive that I feel a responsibility to share with the community that raised us what we have to offer. And so when we opened Bolted Bread, the whole drive for me was we, we have to. This is not something that like we want to do. This is something we have to do because Joshua and Fulton have these special gifts. And if we don't share these gifts, then we're selfish. And if we're selfish, then we're bad people. So we have to do the right thing. And then after a few years of Bolted Bread, when Joshua worked out a bagel, I was like, well, we have to show this to people. There's no option. Sweet. Tell me a little bit about why people think you can't have a bagel in the South. Okay, this gets me really worked up. So <laughs> I've thought about this a lot because um, growing up here and then moving to Vermont to like kind of learn how to bake, this sounds insane. And I, I truly don't mean it in any sort of like overarching thing. Um, but there were a lot of people who uh, were pretty rude to me in Vermont because I was from the South and had a Southern accent. And I don't really have a crazy Southern accent, but I have a slight one. And so yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. Okay, that's in your mind. A, a great point. In my mind, it's very neutral, and um, I'm just American. But uh, there's this. Uh, hopefully, as, as a world, but especially as, as Americans over the last several decades in my adult life, we've like moved in sort of a slow and steady and like a, a progressive path in how we've treated each other. But there's still this like one vestige of society where it's okay to be a bigot. And that's not to say it's the only vestige of society where bigotry still exists, but where it's accepted and that's like the culinary world. Like, you know, we all work to build each other up, but if you're from the South and trying to bake a bagel, then you're an idiot, you're a moron. What do you know about bagels? Like, and this exists elsewhere too, you know, trying to make biscuits in New York, I'm sure it's the same way. Right. But for me, as someone from the South, like that's how I felt, you know? Um, and so I guess if I like step back from it, there's um, in the South, particularly in the Southeast where we're from, there's not the same sort of like cultural history of bagel bakers. Um, there's not this shared knowledge that has been passed down from generation to generation to generation. You can't get a good bagel in the South because there aren't many bagels in the South to begin with. But then there haven't also been the decades and decades and decades of experience to lend to good bagels being baked down here. But I think it's important for me personally, and I hope it's important for other people too, to like 
push past these uh, culinary perceptions that we have. I've, in a very intimate way, devoted everything that I have to baking really good things. And bagels are an extension of that. And um, I, I think and I hope that if people come down here and try a bagel, they can try it with an open mind. Like, this isn't <clears throat> necessarily a southern bagel. It's just a really, really good bagel. It's, it's not. Really it's not an expression of your southernness. Right. It is an expression of your craft, mm-hmm. which you have dedicated your life to, and here you are. That's beautiful. Well, that's the idea, right? So travel allows you to let go of these prejudices, to let go of this idea that something in the South has to be southern. Right. right? Absolutely. And the bagel for me is that perfect representation of that. I mean, the the gift of travel is that you are not home. You are not in your own context. And it can be so lovely to find something that reminds you of home while you're on the road. But even more so, it can be so lovely to just go out in the world and see what's out there without judgment and without any preconceived notions and without any agenda and to just let the world come to you that way. And when we get an out-of-towner here, what we really want to do is to be able to give them joy in that moment. And we, we think that we're pretty good at that. We, we like really are proud of what we do because it's not based on our geography. It's not based on sticking to what you know. It's this is what we have. We're going to continue to push to express ourselves. So the idea is that if you can leave that concept of what a bagel has to be, behind, you may have a better experience. Yeah. Yeah. If I come and I'm like, well, this is not a New York bagel, I'm ruining the experience for myself. Before you even set foot in the door. And you are accurate also, that it's not. And that's okay. Well, I had a good time. I hope you did too. If you'd like to reach us, Go to Everywhere Podcast on Instagram, Everywhere Pod on Twitter, or the website, everywherepodcast.com. Thanks for hanging out. I'm Daniel Scheffler, and I'll see you everywhere. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.